Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, John Carter. In the year 1912, Mars was still cool. Still had canals. Maybe it has canals now. Canals now. That's hard to say. <laughs> I mean, in the end, I'm disappointed if Mars doesn't have canals, right? So, yeah. Um, but yes, we're getting into Mars. We're getting to John Carter of Mars. I, I, that's okay. So the movie, I'm like, that was the biggest flaw, I think, that they just called it John Carter, right? You can get away yeah. with a, a Jack Reacher or a John Wick. That sounds cool. But John Carter sounds like the guy you're buying insurance from. So we at least need to add Mars to his name, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was a... um that's the the sort of the centerpiece of how they got the marketing completely wrong now if they'd released the movie in the 50s and just called it john carter it would have been fine that would have been like releasing a movie called indiana jones right Mm. because actually Mm. in the 50s everyone knew about it um because the guy for people who don't know it was written the the book series was written by the same guy edgar rice burroughs who um, created tarzan so you understand, like, if Disney had got that right and it emphatically didn't, um, they had a new Star Wars on their hands. And you'll note that because it failed, they did fairly shortly afterwards buy <laughs> Lucasfilm. <laughs> but if they'd got that right, there's sort of realistically there's a trilogy, but there's about 10 books that you can put in it. Uh, and you can actually, this the, it's, you know, I like coming on and, and talking about movies no one else does, uh, does enjoy. Um <clears throat> This is actually a good film um, if you're looking for like a new Star Wars or something that has just been completely ruined. It's the most amazing missed opportunity. And it's one of the things I like about it. People have either seen it and assumed they didn't like it or just or haven't seen it and assumed that it's quite bad. But you hold it up against something like, I mean, admittedly, The Phantom Menace was 10 years or so before, 12 years before. Um, but you hold it up against what's supposed to be like a bad space opera. And actually it's pretty good. (laughs) This was my first time watching it. Um, So I, I knew vaguely what John Carter was. Like I knew old pulp science fiction hero. I had no idea it had the like astral projection stuff, which I'm sure we're going to get into later. Uh, I assumed he just went there on a rocket ship or something. (laughs) Um, But watching it, there's there's something here. But I think there are problems beyond just the marketing. Yeah. Well, the source material, so what you have to understand is where the source material came from. They did a pretty good job because Edgar Rice Burroughs is or was famously very racist, amongst <laughs> other things, right? His like main character is a Confederate captain. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, that's, but in the book, so in the movie, and I, I love this kind of stuff, like one of the things he was so... 
um, he's a, an excellent, what is it about pulp writers and racism? I don't know. But like, it's not like he was a great writer, but his writing is really addictive, right? Mm. Uh, and he put himself in the short story to start with, which made it into the film, right? So that he is, in fact, Edgar Rice Burroughs, as a young man, is the nephew of mm -hmm. um, John Carter. But in the book, so so he inherits everything when John Carter dies. And for people who are listening to this, if you haven't seen it, that's on you because the movie has one of my favorite switcheroos at the end and we're going to have to talk about it. But it, he actually inherits, like, it starts in a plantation house, which Disney kind of wisely moved to what looks like an English country home or something instead, right? Because if you actually read the book, John Carter was beloved by the slaves and all this. <laughs> and you think, mm, well done for Disney of all houses to uh, to sort of skirt around that. But you kind of get the, he has that turn of the century, literal white supremacy of um, the white savior, right? So the, the people of Mar, that's, that's what Tarzan is. So Tarzan actually sits in the house of Lords. So it's this idea that, because he was the son of a lord who was raised um, in the jungle, right? So there is this idea of, like, noble English blood being good at management and so on, right? Uh, and that's not strictly there in the movie, um, but it is there in, uh, as not as explicit as Tarzan, but it's there in the Basum books, Basum being the yeah, Basumian the word for Mars. Right. But, yeah, in the movie, it's just like, oh, he's really strong because he's from Earth. And you can get yeah. behind that. That's basically Superman. Yeah, they're going a little bit with the uh, the superhero trip on this one. Um, just some, I just realized we never introduced any of ourselves. I guess we'll quickly do that and get that out of the way. So this is Matt. This is Luke of Earth. Yeah, there. That's, that's yeah, yeah. I didn't win my introduction, but we do have uh, from the Rune Soup podcast and website coming back to break down the films of 2012. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be my niche. Gordon White, he all yeah, I've like now you you've got to own that now. You're now that you said it, he has to come on and do 2012 with us. <laughs> but that was made in 2009. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we can complete the series with that one because that will allow me to talk about Terrence McKenna. So, oh right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I was just thinking disaster movie, but okay, McKenna, we can do that. Time waves, all that, love it. <laughs> um, I do remember actually having some anticipation for this coming out in 2012 um mostly because i was a pixar geek and a uh, director andrew stanton had done you know finding nemo and wally so this was going to be the the big step into well, um yeah kind of live absolutely. action and and it's he would have had like i was watching some videos uh, on youtube about this in preparation for the call but he would have been he would have been given a Star Wars or um, maybe one of the Marvel films or something if Disney hadn't fucked this up because it's actually really well directed um, and 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 for 2012 so basically a decade ago when it's in production it looks really good um, and and you can actually get you know the humans and like the Tharks and whatever in the one scene you you forget that you're actually watching that kind of mixed animation and, and human performance thing. It's, it's, it's actually quite well done in a way that I don't think people realize. Again, you go into it, this is a pulp story um, and a, a kind of attempt or swing at getting a series together. Uh, but, 
And apparently Disney Plus, there's this rumor that, you know, Disney's still looking for its Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, whatever. And I hear that apparently the Basum stuff's going to be a Disney Plus series. So they're going to give it another shot. I don't shot. think they currently own it. Really? Yeah, um, Wikipedia said that after the, they didn't make the sequels, the rights reverted to the Burroughs estate. Oh, interesting. I mean, no, it's I not like it. Disney can't buy it. Yeah, but... they can buy it yeah, again. Exactly. <laughs> or, Di- yeah, Disney out there with like a tin cup and an eye patch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's what I heard anyway, because it's it's a pity. Uh, it, the, the series of books, I haven't read all of them. I've only read Princess of Mars. But like the first one, the books are actually multi-generational. Like his kids are in the final ones. And, and so there actually was like, a, if they'd got that, if it had been positioned correctly. And it's funny, like... Um, I used to work in in media and in marketing for entertainment products. It really is as dumb as someone just not getting it in the room uh, to end up with a book that's called A Princess of Mars becomes John Carter of Mars, which was a later book title, and then just becomes John Carter. I remember when, this as a kid, um, when The Madness of King George came out um, in the Commonwealth, so outside the U.S., there was kind of news articles about the fact that it was not called the madness of King George III, even though King George III was the mad king. And it's because Americans would would think it was a sequel. I've heard that. (laughs) And I always assumed it was somewhat apocryphal, but maybe. Yeah, but you think, (laughs) I I don't understand why. I saw it in the theater, but I can't remember what the marquee said. (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea why they cut of Mars off. It's not like. Even the end of the film has a big title splash that says John Carter of Mars. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's amazing. It's just absolute. And apparently the other thing they did, because they're sort of looking into it, there was a review embargo up until like too quick or too briefly before opening weekend. So reviewers were allowed to see it, but they weren't allowed to actually post their reviews until like a week or so beforehand. And this is back when, you know, print and broadcast media actually mattered. Um, and so the the reviews didn't build the anticipation for opening weekend. And once you get a shit opening weekend, it's all over, right? So it wasn't actually just the name change. How Disney brought it to market was just an absolute diarrhea buff. And it's a pity. And it's funny because I just spent so much money on it. I just, one of the reasons I like John Carter is not just because it's a perfectly, not just perfectly adequate space opera um, or space fantasy. It invented, ERB invented space fantasy, right? Like we have Star Wars because of these books and, and him as a crazy ass author. But it was the whole process of bringing it to market to spend so much on it. That was the other thing. Like I was looking at old articles about it. They spent 350 million on it, which was too much. Like if the, that's obvious, right? You you got the whole Lord of the Rings for 350 million, I think. Um, so if you'd maybe halved that, the film would have been a massive flop, and they might have actually thought about doing the other doing the other films. But I, I know I find it kind of interesting. I find it interesting that. It's almost cursed in a way. Um, so, and, yeah, they should have uh, distilled it down just a little more and just called it JC. Exactly. Cool. <laughs> well, after the John Carter of Mars splash, it then gives you a big JCM logo. Like they were so sure this was going to be a franchise when they were making it. Yeah.
John Carter is a Confederate captain who has spent the post-war years prospecting. After discovering an ancient artifact in a cave, he became interested in archaeology until the day he dropped dead and left everything to his nephew. Reading John Carter's journal, his nephew discovers that what the captain had discovered was a ticket to Mars, a planet the Martians call Bassoon. While his body lies dead on Earth, another John Carter swashbuckles on the red planet. On Mars, Carter is captured by the Tharks, rescues a princess, helps her escape an arranged marriage to a warlord, defeats the warlord, discovers the warlord was a puppet of the enigmatic beings known as Therns, and gets banished back to Earth. Carter's nephew unwittingly brings a Thern right to John Carter, who has been faking this particular death. John Carter kills the tail, steals a medallion, and gets his ass back to Mars. say um i think this is going to be an interesting podcast because i actually think this film is really badly directed <laughs> really i think you can tell that he's not used to working with live action actors okay that's fair because um all the cg characters really pop yeah but all the on-screen actors and there are some great actors in here mm. are so flat so i think the cg actors so you got willem dafoe and samantha morton as some of the cg actors right yeah and they are good actors mm. um brian well, cranston it, does a good job for instance in terms yeah. of like i mean he's he just comes in and brian cranston's it he doesn't give it any sure but like, i don't think i don't think lynn collins or taylor kitsch is particularly they're not bad i just don't think they're that good they're yeah but i think um uh, but even um I've forgotten his name. The one from Game of Thrones. Um, he's a really good actor. Shiran, um, Kieran Hands. Kieran Hands. I don't oh, know yeah, 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 Irish yeah. names. Yeah. He's, he could be, he's phenomenal in Game of Thrones, but here he has no gravitas. Yeah. Dominic, Dominic West is McNulty. And here he's like, he could have been this great scenery chewing villain, but here he's just this nothing presence. I mean, Mark Strong's Mark Strong. He's great in everything. <laughs> I felt he looked like uh, kind of a um, angry Jeffrey Tambor in this one, to be honest. Which was really fun, but <laughs> Jeffrey Tambor with magical powers. I would definitely. That's that's the pitch for the next John Carter film. <laughs> but I, th I think it comes back to what you're saying about having too big of a budget. Like your first live action movie shouldn't be a three hundred and fifty million dollar no. extravaganza, right? You cut yeah. your teeth directing some actual some small scale stuff to get used to how you direct actors on a set. But do you think you could have pulled an adequate performance out of that anyway, given that the script is like, cause I just think you want to see bad acting in a space opera, Hayden Christensen. Right. Um, so if you, again, let's not fair. start pretending George Lucas is a great director. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, so I, you don't, whilst it's reasonable, 
it's it's a it's a fair critique. It's also I would look at it like it's a space opera. This isn't Miramax heading into award season. You know, it's like no, a, but then there there are plenty of space films which do have great acting. Space films, and not swashbuckling space, okay. space um, operas. <laughs> Empire Strikes Back, right? Yeah. Um, Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> the best two Star Wars films have great. There are seven action. other Star Wars films. Yeah, I know, but the ones who were directed by good directors can do it. Yeah, I think um, it, it struggles with um, the names are stupid. Even by like, we have to realize um, Edgar Rice Burroughs invented everything. Like everything, everyone name checks him: Michael Crichton, James Cameron, George Lucas. Like, there's no Flash Gordon without him. Like the stuff he does first, like um, the arena scenes, which all look really derivative to us. It's because everyone literally mined the Basum. Oh yeah, it's the, the same. Like, the same thing we're so, having but, at the moment with Dune. But if yeah, and if you jump back to like a hundred years ago when it came out. The, the names are so stupid, right? And even by space opera standards. So at least there's they're a bit the names are a bit more lyrical in Star Wars. But you have words like um Jeddak and and um just silly names of, of of people and trying to get that into dialogue, into people's mouths, uh, is never well, fun <laughs> as a writer or director. There's and it a does lesson. So. There's yeah. a lesson Frank Herbert did not learn then. <laughs> well, that's, perhaps the error there is, but then again, you bring up Frank, and I think Dune actually did it pretty well. But I think one of the ways to do John Carter is to be a bit more Flash Gordon about it. I think like so maybe too. they tried to be a bit too serious here with some stuff that is pretty. We got four armed green guys and stuff. There are yeah. some gags. There are some gags in there, and it does have some fun with it. Yeah, I don't know if it takes itself too seriously, but it, it definitely doesn't go as it doesn't go necessarily wacky. Hmm. Um, I think it enjoys itself reasonably well. I, I, from the Again, very I, beginning, I, yeah. I did enjoy this film. I liked watching this film. I just think you could tell, like, I do think it, even had it been marketed properly, I think it might have been a bit too flat to have been the next mega hit. Oh, totally, totally. It's not just the marketing that left it behind, that, but also we wouldn't. it could have grown mm. if it had been given additional films for it, which I think it set up. Because no one, like everyone's adequate. Willem Dafoe and Samantha Morton are really good, but everyone's perfectly adequate um, in the film. Taylor Kitsch probably would have been quite good, you know, um, being the lead actor in, in several of them. I think that would have kind of worked. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, I like it almost because it's not good um, and not in that way of like... You're on the I, right I'm, podcast for that, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, but also, it says like, you mentioned the um, you mentioned the canals on Mars. What's even more interesting about this film? Again, it's 100 years ago and he... I think he lied about the books that he did and didn't pretend to read. Like um, Edgar Rice Burroughs himself, for people who don't know, who kind of like, he was born into a reasonable amount of wealth, but couldn't get it together as an adult. Like he had multiple failed businesses. He basically kicked off his brother's farm for being really shit at that. Um, He's the original Donald Trump Jr. More or less. And so he's selling, although he can write, because that's what happened next. He was a pencil sharpener salesman. And you look, that thing that people say when they go into a modern art museum, this is shit, I could do better than that. He's reading this pulp science fiction and he's like, this is shit, I can do better than that. 
and he did. <laughs> and that's kind of the story of, and not just that, he was the first person to incorporate himself as a business. He retained like the, the radio and film rights for Tarzan mm. and so on. So although he didn't die wealthy, he made as much money as you could as this kind of like and one of the first entertainment entrepreneurs, which also means that he kind of like hoovered up information and maybe lied about it. Like he would say that he hadn't read, um, you know, stuff like Jules Verne or any of this like before. Um, and and you look at what's in there. You mentioned the astral traveling and and the therns in general. I think he read a bunch of theosophy, uh, but more importantly, coming back to Mars, in the early 20th century, we did think there were canals on Mars. So there were front page articles in the New York Times about how we communicate with Martians. And one of the ideas was to burn pie onto the Siberian grasslands because that's a universal number and so on. Mm. I don't know how you would depict that without using alphanumerics, but anyway, that was one of the ideas because they really did think that there were tunnels um, on Mars. And, and not just that, he gets some things about Mars correct in terms of, dare we say, ufology or what I would consider to be real archaeoastronomy. Uh, for whatever reason, we've known as a culture or a planet that, just assume that's what Earth is, right? But we've known, we've always considered Mars the war planet. And you think, yeah, it's red, right? Red and blood and so on. Cool. But it also, as far as I can tell, is the only planet that was bombed from orbit 450 uh, what was it, million or four, yeah, 450 million years ago, according to like Dr. John Brandenburg, a plasma physicist, and people at JPL and so on. And it does appear to have Egyptian ancient, well, not Egyptian, Egyptian, but like pyramidal structures. And this idea that the face on Mars has been debunked is crap. Um, that is simply not correct. And the same thing with all the kind of different ratios of stuff of the Cydonia area. None of this was known to him, right? But he, he creates this world where... Um, there is these kind of like hyperdimensional secret chief type beings meddling in a multiplanetary history. And on Mars, they've been at war for a thousand years and all of these cultures are kind of declined and living in the ruins of much older ones. Their main goddess is Isis. Uh, and you think, that's not bad. That's one of the reasons I like it. You watch it and go, you kind of knocked a lot of that shit out of the park. And, and that that is a sort of accidental remote viewing that can come with creativity. Well, it's also, Which it's I think, yeah. it's a bit more modern than I'd have been expecting from a 1910 book. Like I said, I was expecting he goes up there on a rocket ship. Yeah. But the stuff with like these secret, like, you know, the characters who are a bit metaphysical, not everyone can see them. All of that stuff felt way more like something you'd see recently. Yeah. Well, that's because there's a, you know, a theosophical revival, but that idea of the secret chiefs or um, ascended masters and so on is a real, and I agree, real 19th century idea and early 20th century. And there were groups of magicians and, and metaphysicists and whatever that would be doing, we call it like remote viewing or astral projection or whatever, but doing that kind of contact uh, with planets. And that kind of interested me, especially what the therns say, they're sort of these hyperdimensional bad guys is that they don't, um, they show up to facilitate the collapse of civilizations. They don't show up to collapse them. And so they're bad guys, but also performing some sort of cosmic recycling function. So for someone who was quite anti-religion, which he was, he considered brainwashing and, and whatever, there's, a, there's this, uh, a real early 20th century, late 19th century esoteric sophistication that has to come from somewhere. And he did lie about, not having read books uh, that clearly have influenced him. 
And I can't see anywhere any kind of like theosophical or similar. I'm not saying he was a theosophist, but I'm pretty sure he would have read some Blavatsky and Bailey and, and kind of dropped that in. And, and consequently, if you're kind of entangling with that sort of information, you're doing something to your unconscious in a, in a creative way that can give you a verisimilitude or accuracy. You're kind of accidentally doing magic. And given how popular it was, like he was definitely tapping into something archetypally powerful. Like Tarzan was electrifying in, in the early 20th century. I find it weird and boring, but people are queuing around the block for it and buying dozens of books and, and all the rest of it. So he, he, he quite clearly was, he, he found the archetypes that were close to the surface. But the Mars thing, it's just too weird. Like it's, it's almost... It's almost a history. Like that's <laughs> that's how good he he got with it. I presume the history of Mars was less racist, but other than that, he did a pretty good job. Yeah, one thing I do like about this movie um, is it does make its own rules and sticks to them, which uh, I guess is a virtue of the book as well. Because uh, you know, the space opera suddenly, you know, the finale has John Carter getting some mind power and blasting the therns out of existence or something, which doesn't work in the you know, in the rules of this movie. So, you know, he gets to Mars. Okay. He can jump. He's a little stronger. That that's all you're going to get. Um, the way society works, you know, the princess is make, I mean, has more agency than I guess your normal space opera princess, not all the agency, but uh, a little bit yeah. more that she's making decisions and such. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually think, I mean, it's not just the races of the book. So for people who don't know, like, in the movie, everyone's mostly naked, but in the books, everyone is naked. Mm. Um, every 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 actor, everyone who lives on Mars doesn't wear clothes. It's weird. There's like a there's a strange kind of early 20th century eroticism in the books. Um, they're all like they're fighting each other, all completely nude and and what have you. And in this one, I think they nod to it in a way by making everyone wear the most absurd, scantily clad. Like I'm going to go into battle in basically like the G string from Barat, like it does seem a bit, um, I, but I think they did quite a good job of it. Coming back to the agency thing, there was, I've seen, I've watched some videos of people kind of not defending his white supremacy. That's, a, that's not the right way of saying it, but kind of going like for a racist, he was kind of weird because his racism was actually like an understanding of different cultures and, and some female agency because in well, all of his have- books, yeah. There's an element of you have to judge him by the fact he was writing in 1910. Yeah, exactly. And progressive for 1910 is backwards and racist for 2010, right? So yeah, but he like yes, and and I think when it comes to his women, who again, um, Dejo is naked the whole time <laughs> in the actual books. But if you think of Jane from Tarzan, what happens is you have like these intelligent. It's basically the same woman in all these books, and she's smart. Um, she's at odds in some way with her culture. So they kind of bond over being, because the, the male protagonist yeah. is a fish out of water um, and she's somehow like at odds with the culture, but he at least like, they, they at least had brains. <laughs> mm. So it's, this, it's a strange book of going like, you think white people are better. And yet, <laughs> and I, I, I love that. Um, I love the tension of what to do with that. And especially if you knew that coming into the, 
like the film. It's like, how are they going <laughs> to, how are they going to handle all of this kind of stuff? Although while we're on um, gender, one thing I really loved about this film. Um, so the green Martians who are somewhat reptilian, they didn't give the women breasts. No, that's true. Yeah, They just had very mm. similar bodies to the men, right? Which makes sense. But you watch yeah. even like Doctor Who or something, the Silurians, the female just randomly have a breast shaped body. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, so now that's because <laughs> hmm. actually everyone on Mars lays eggs. Okay, so, so even the women, um, and yet they do have, <laughs> well, yeah, but <laughs> they might think... because they're mammals, they might still breastfeed. Um, I think platypi still breastfeed, out. right? Yeah, it must be, yeah, yeah, monotremes. <laughs> But also, mm. like, I guess they, they, the one that he was going to shag, they wanted to look human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Though, I, yeah, I felt like the, um, I mean, she looked a little weird, which I guess makes sense because she's a Martian, you know, it's the jet black hair and the just slightly off, you know, the, the actually the Trump hair, hair skin, I guess we'll say. See, uh, <laughs> for me, the color, you were talking about how like all the people are ridiculously orange. But for me, it didn't seem that outrageous, especially with like they're on the Mars. It just like lighting to me. Mm. And then you think like most films made in the 2010s, everyone was fucking orange. That's true. It was constant orange and teal, right? Like I think I know what you mean. I think Deja, there's there's some scenes where Deja Thoris looks fake tanned properly. Like she's mm. just um, done a real cheap Miami job on it. And um, but I, I like, yeah. The, the rest of the red Martians, and that's the trouble. They are supposed to be red. Yeah. And so it's like, how do you, it's another thing they think they did reasonably well for the, for the most part. Uh, the, the, the dialogue's terrible. And I like, they, they do stick to the world. So <laughs> there aren't sophisticated, in the early 20th century, there aren't sophisticated flying machines, which means by the time it gets to Mars astrally, you can tell that there's sort of like the early 20th century idea of high flying technology, which I love. I love these kind of like weird sort of solar powered kind of like half helicopter platforms rather than actual spaceships. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some, there's some of the motifs about it. It's not, it's not solar punk. It's not, uh, you know, it's not cyberpunk or anything like that. It's just this weird, again, almost theosophical motif. Actually, one thing I put in my notes specifically to ask you, Gordon, was uh, when they go into the temple, there's all the carvings. I'm just kind of wondering what what you saw there. I was I was looking for those little handbags that, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, that would have been fun. That yeah, was yeah. not there. But I was kind of curious what, what you made of that scene, uh, being a man who who works in a lot of symbology. Um, not I didn't actually pay enough attention to it. I do love the I do love the Egypt angle to it. Uh, there was a book that came out in the late 19th century that he must have read that kind of, another sci-fi book or whatever it was called back then that sort of posited an Egyptian Martian connection. Um, so he wasn't the first to do it, but it's given what happened, it's done really well, especially um, if it's ISIS in particular, 
um, Isis, you, there's a lot of astrotheology around her as a being. So I was actually very, and also she's probably one of the oldest, as far as I can tell, like well and truly pre-dynastic as a being in, in Egyptian culture, right? So she's at least Neolithic, which means the timescales sort of work. And what you can see on Basum is what Isis may have looked like um, you know, or not really, but like what ISIS worship and, and an ISIS culture may have looked like before. And I just, I really liked it. And I like the idea of them traveling down essentially the Nile, like the river is at a certain point in there. That's his eugenics coming through, right? Like once you get to a certain age, like off you go um, and you go and feed the, the other green Martians, whatever they called. Um, but I didn't see anything particularly in there. I did like the whole ninth ray stuff. <clears throat> I liked that. Again, this is where I think the theosophy is in. I would have used a different magical metaphysics for it, but that whole idea of rays was really popular and, and different like energetic bodies and things at the time. And to have the kind of whole thing run on it, including the astral projection, is again, it's way more sophisticated than this. I don't want to call him a scam artist, um, but this sort of born entertainer is a nice way of saying it. it's way more sophisticated <laughs> than uh than he should have come up with how, uh, how shortly was this written after x-rays were discovered i have no idea I'm gonna I, look that up. I reckon that would have been right around the same time must have been must have been i am is is astral project i guess astral projections are the right word because i'm thinking he has to get his body secluded on earth right which is sort mm. of like a uh a fella and or lady in the Himalayas finding their cave. Okay, eighteen ninety five was X ray, so they'd had fifteen years to soak into the, yeah. the popular culture, and also into people's bodies and cells. Um. <laughs> well, they used to. What was it? I think. I think it was in the thirties and forties. They would like do like, we will fit your child's shoes by X raying their feet, which <laughs> turned out to be a terrible idea, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, I I think about that like. Astral projection is the word they use, and it was the word they used at the time. And he is projecting across, across the astra, right? But, yeah, there's a bit of, I mean, it's done well enough in the film because you don't actually know that he's still in the spider cave until he comes back, right? Mm. Because you just, they, they don't come back to Earth uh, until the very end of it. But I quite like that idea, um, and, and you couldn't really explain it without spoiling what I think is actually a really good, the subsection of Twist being a switcheroo at the end. Anything that's that Pirates of the Caribbean, anything, like, I, I just watch the second and third films laughing every time, it, you know, the, the switcheroos of it. I thought it was actually a really good ending. Uh, and just that kind of real cleverness. And you can't really explain what happens. But I do think about it. I'm like, is this, um, is this like Cylons? <laughs> right like can you if you every time you project do you get another one like is that um and i don't know uh, so it, but yeah the right word for it is is astral projection i guess it's not quite the same thing matt but you had a guest on oral hygiene a little while back who was talking about visiting like alien installations and stuff through astral projection right like um yeah yeah the yuri geller and the, the project stargate all that sort of stuff uh comes to mind but yeah and that they are not recreating another there's not body. another yeah there's not the second body but there is the but the idea of like at this point scientifically it's seeming less and less feasible that we can literally go back and forth between stars in a ship so the idea of going through a consciousness 
is actually feeling more and more like that's the real science fiction rather than fantasy. Yeah, I know what you mean by that. I mean, who knows what kind of black projects actually exist, but we do know that you can accurately get information like Ingo Swan did of other planets by remote viewing it, right? So I agree. That's what I mean. It's surprisingly, when you say it's surprisingly modern, it's like it's actually, obviously it's a uh, it's a novel or novella. And so you can't really have a love interest if you're like a ghost, or you can, mm-hmm. the movie Ghost. But um you can't really have sex with Deja if your penis. The movie is Ghostbusters, right? Like, so you you do have to have him be physical. He's not a really good superhero if he doesn't have yeah. a body. But like, other than that, I think it's actually again, it's certainly better than the late nineteen. Like speaking of Jules Verne and so on, it's certainly better than like the sort of Victorian steam powered interplanetary travel. Um, and and that's what I mean. The like, first time I watched it, I'm like, I did not expect that and then i had to think like is this edgar rice burris or was i thinking of like some other 19th century kind of like was it did he write zanoni and i'm like no no it really is it the, the tarzan guy and so i don't know where <laughs> i don't know where all of that cool stuff came from so i probably know the answer to this but did either of you watch the other john carter film that came out in 2009 no. no, there was a straight. There was a straight to DVD Asylum, John Carter of Mars. Um, but that one, what's interesting about it is the reason they made it and the way they marketed it was the classic story that inspired Avatar. Yeah. So it's um, called "This Is an Avatar." No, we'll cover that one eventually. <laughs> but um, the ending of this film, I mean, I don't know how much it lines up with where the book cuts off. Um. But the ending is the ending of Avatar. Yeah. It's like he accepts to go back to the, the other body as his real body. It has the shot of him traveling through and then film ends. Yeah. Um, it, obviously, this is what's so weird because I hadn't read the book before I watched the film. Mm. Um, and I can't even remember it. I read it pretty much straight after because it's out of copyright and I just read it on my first ever Kindle back in London. Um, the, it's not just... Like I kept watching and going, well, that's from Phantom Menace and that's from this and that's from this. And you think, hang on a minute, this came out first. And that's yeah. why I wanted to go back to read it, to go, has literally everyone been stealing from this one guy for 100 years? And the answer is yes. Um, Ray, Ray Bradbury said that he's he was the most influ- influential writer ever and not just on fiction writers. But he, like Bradbury said that he's met, like he hasn't met like a physicist or a biochemist or anything that hasn't been influenced by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And you think that's kind of interesting. That's what I mean by there is something to this and, and there is something archetypal to this rather than an inherent talent in ERB himself. Because, and my evidence for that is the eerily accurate Mars in a way, like there's not thugs and whatever on Mars, right? But in this kind of eerily accurate way, it means that he was tapping into something deep because if you don't, if you're not actually expressing you can you know when someone has kind of tapped an archetypal vein by the impact that they have, and this impact has lasted a century and has like changed the world. It's it's in, uh, it's inspired people to go into astrophysics and all these other kind of fields, as well as change how we understand like science fiction. And that's that is impressive for a book and an author that like it's not a masterpiece. This is what I want to say. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. 
Yeah, that's sometimes the most in my head. Do you know what I mean? Like there's something about this. And that's why I want to know that he was a secret theosophist or something, <laughs> but he just he wasn't. <laughs> well, but, I mean, if he was from a wealthy family around that period, even if he wasn't a member of a, he would have been bumping shoulders with guys who were getting into that stuff, right? Presumably. It was just in the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah, presumably. And even living in California for most of his life, again, coming up in Hollywood, you get a bunch of that manly pee hole stuff, all of that going on. So I, I agree. I, I also just think it was in the ether. And as far as like the way he, he narrativized his own kind of writer's origin story was even though and this is a bit mean, even though he had two young children at the time, he apparently had a lot of spare time to himself because selling pencil sharpeners was it was more like a pyramid scheme where he would manage <laughs> the people going out selling them. So apparently he just had a, a nice job if you can get it, I suppose, to just do nothing <laughs> but read. So multi-level sure. marketing these days. <laughs> exactly. And I'm sure that, like, yeah, it's just, if you look at it, it's weird. So Tarzan had a bigger impact on shall we say Hollywood or entertainment media media or something, right? Mm. Because there's been fucking 30 Tarzan films and TV series and radio plays and all the rest of it. And this one less so, like the Basum series less so, but it seems to have had like a bigger, again, archetypal or unconscious impact. It's There's something about it that matches the way people who are interested in things like ufology see Mars, it's, I, I don't know. There's, it's, something... well, it, it's like the thing with um, music. Often the one which is, the thing which is popular in the day isn't the thing which actually has legs and influences things and you listen to 20 years later. Absolutely. So Tarzan caught fire in the early 20th century because it's, people are very repressed and just coming out of like really puritanical century. I'm like, ooh, here's a man who runs around in his pants who gives into his animal instincts. So yeah, that, but the science fiction stuff was just seeping into people's minds and they would go on to iterate and expand. It was kind of the, the game of, of um, past the baton as well, where, you know, like very clearly this had, had some legs in the, in the teens. And then, you know, Flash Gordon kind of picked up the ball to where the second yeah. movie serial even is, you know, Flash Gordon's trip to Mars. And yeah, then it was just all rocket ships and well, and, you know, we get to the sixties and uh science fiction sort of explodes from there. I, th I think Dune is the, it took the more, I think Dune was the one which took, because Burroughs, like you said, created science fantasy. Yeah. But a lot of the stuff that Matt just mentioned from the 20s and 30s tries to go pure science. Yeah. Like Flash Gordon seems fantastical now because we understand science a bit better. But at the time, that was just how they thought rocket ships and shit would work. Exactly. Whereas then Dune takes hard science fiction, but brings the fantastical elements back into it. And then that yeah. obviously leads to Star Wars and all of that jazz. I think, yes, I think, yeah, that's a, probably a good read on it, right? So the actual, it's so dumb calling things like Flash Gordon hard sci-fi, right? But <laughs> hard sci-fi crowded out science fantasy because it, it's he certainly didn't begin science fiction, right? Like there was proper science fiction in the 19th century, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, this is... You can make other claims or cases. You can make a case for other stories, but this is a pretty good. You can also make a very solid case that the Basum series is kind of like the origin of, of science fantasy. This the we have lightsabers because of ERB, right? Like mm. it's that kind of swords in space idea, which literally is in <laughs> uh on in John Carter. Of Mars, a princess of Mars. 
<laughs> yeah, we just jumble the words and they'll make sense eventually. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead, because I was actually going on a slight subject change. Oh, I was a bit, because I've got a special guest who has a question for Gordon. Is there life on Mars? <laughs> um, there was. I don't know if there still is. Nice poster, I, though. Thanks. <laughs> my brother bought it for me from a street artist in Budapest, but oh, it's cool. too heavy to stay on my walls. And for the people listening, <laughs> what was it? There's a, there's a painting of David Bowie, fully Ziggy Stardusted up. Very psychedelic size. So yeah, yeah, he's like <laughs> a, he is like a cloud in space. It's great. <laughs> I was wondering if like uh, if the Black Star clip, the video clip, wasn't a, a kind of John Carter reference in a way, because when he comes back in the movie, not maybe to the movie, although it's not very Bowie, I suppose, but when he comes back and Brian Cranston's character is just bones. Uh, in in the cave, and it's kind of like this. I mean, the the the, the skeleton in a spacesuit has been around for a while as an idea, but it just it reminded me of it when it came out. I'm like, oh yeah, John. Carter. Well, I like to believe that Bowie didn't die; he just returned to his home planet. So, well, you know, exactly. Him and Sunra, yes. <laughs> so all the Sunra fans say, I went back to Saturn, <laughs> but um. Yeah, I was going to mention, I've actually been reading a book. Uh, it's called, I think it was published like 2006. And, you know, we're here talking about, I still want a chapter on John Carter now. It's called a, you know, a fiasco, a look at Hollywood's iconic flops. And it is, you know, just interesting how some of these movies get twisted and tangled. And, you know, with a budget this big, I mean, how much of it was spent on like, you know, taking helicopters to lunch and things like that. Apparently that's a thing. So uh, I just, I have it up. It's got Cleopatra. It is a lot. And the, the names aren't big enough, right? Like it's, it's not a big name director. At the, I mean, it is, but it's not a big name director at the time. Taylor Kitsch wasn't big. Um, and you think of like Willem Dafoe, also not, it's not like he's an indie actor, but it's a small he's a character role. actor, right? He does. Yeah, right. So it certainly didn't go into the cast. There's absolutely, there was a lot of, you know, special effects in it but i i don't know it doesn't look like 350 million to me <laughs> like you were saying at the start the way it integrates actors and effects is really good yeah and there are lots of shots in this which look great and then every now and then there's a shot where i don't know if it's the lighting or the blocking but it's like i'm not watching a live action movie i'm watching a pixar movie suddenly I Just think there are no human actors, uh, especially with the Thox. There were a few times where I'm like, wait a minute, do we just suddenly go Pixar? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When he, when he was fighting the Green Martians coming back from the River Is, and they're all kind of piling on him, and he's, you know, that that is a director who hasn't done a fight scene with a human in it. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was also, you can tell it wasn't directed by an action director. Exactly. Because, like, it was, <laughs> it was somewhat exciting, but I was never, like into it right yeah but you know yeah. Yeah, not everyone people think action is easy but it's not 
Now, what is what is the uh, there's the Pixar director that that made it, and his name is escaping my mind. He did one of the Mission Impossible's. He did uh, Tomorrowland. Um, so he was. Uh, I'll have to look it up. But um, if I just put Tomorrowland in, it'll tell me. So yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, he kind of made it work. Uh, he did the Incredibles for Pixar, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Incredibles, in if you want. But um, he seems to really made the like I wanted Andrew Stanton to, you know, that's why I went to see this movie on opening weekend. Right. <laughs> but um, he, he seemed to have pulled that hat trick off a little better. Right. Uh, so he was Brad Bird. And yeah, that yeah, is a name I've heard knocking around. Yeah. He did the iron giant as well. So it seems like he has actually got down animation and live action. Pretty solid. Although because... Even so you look at his movies, it is still mostly animation that he's known for. He yeah, did Tomorrowland yeah. and Ghost Protocol, like you say. Oh, he did Jurassic World. Hmm. Oh, really? I don't. Know. No. I don't think he directed it, did he? I thought that was. No, nah, he didn't direct it. Yeah, yeah, he didn't direct it. Maybe but, he was uh... effects director or something like that. Okay. Any anyway, just those two movies for me. I'm like, those are both pretty. I mean, Tomorrowland's a little bit wonky, but uh, I really like Ghost Protocol. So, and Tomorrowland is definitely has its uh, pluses. So. And, and uh, again, this does too. It, it is in the end, I think it's the marketing that really in the bloated, insane budget. So um, well, it, it makes me annoyed at capitalism because we call this film a massive flop and it, it sold like $300 million worth of tickets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 73, we, million, 73 million US, 211. I looked it up worldwide yeah. and that's, tickets that's not everything else and again people still kind of bought dvds back then so you think yeah. well oh, I, I watched matt's blu-ray copy last night <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs> and you think yeah that um there's flop and there's flop right especially if you factor in the tax break it would have made money if it had had half the budget and just come out as a three out of five which is what it is this isn't a masterpiece three out of five space fantasy <laughs> yeah I'll give it. I'll give it a higher score on the tripometer, though. Just, just paint some actors green for your thoughts, and you could shave a hundred million dollars <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, they did on Star Trek. They can handle it here. <laughs> but um, where where was it? Uh, there there goes the escaping thought. Yeah. Um. Oh, Russia. It broke box office records in russia interestingly <laughs> enough according really? to wiki yeah it had like a it had like a at the time like top opening in russia unfortunately you know russia is not the market where you're going to make back your money but <laughs> you make a little it bit must there. have been something must have been nothing else on like i can't think of anything culturally why that would it's probably some there's some reason in russia that we don't know like they just changed the way cinemas operated or something yeah 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 because it's not yeah, maybe some censorship law that stopped American films had just been. It'll be it's, there'll be some kind some, of weird... nonsense like that. Yeah. yeah, unless I mean his books were translated, and but I I would know like that's not an arrogant statement. Like we would know if ERB is big in Russia. That would be there. That'd be right there on the Wikipedia yeah. page, right? Mm. So, yeah, um, that's cool. That's... <laughs> yeah, Whoever like. If you were in, presumably you got fired, although who knows, but if you were in the marketing department and ruined this film's release, one of the things you'd want to put on your resume is got John Carter to number one opening weekend in Russia. <laughs> well, apparently. Like how, do you put, how do you put your achievements at your time at Disney <laughs> on your resume? And it'd be that, yep. You know, one, Russian specialist. 
one of the head guys at Disney quit over this, even really? though he'd joined, even though he'd taken up the position while it was already in production. Apparently, he cancelled quite a few films that seemed like they were going to be bloated waste of money, but he didn't cancel this one. <laughs> well, um, Andrew and then, yeah, like you a... say, shortly after this is when they, they buy up Marvel, they buy up Star Wars, and they do that big push. Yep. It's like we can't make our own, so we're, we're gonna just buy gonna everyone else's. Buy everyone else's, yeah. <laughs> it looks. I've I've worked in media. It's literally that. Um, that's the play. Like you either buy in growth or you grow organically. Well, and you there's so organically. Many, so many stories where Disney has been producing a film, discovered that a similar film was being made at another studio, and just bought it and buried it. Yeah, yeah we used to have the twin films come out all the time, right? You know, Armageddon, yeah. Deep Impact, uh, Prestige, and Illusionist. Yeah, I mean, that, that we'd go on all day with that. But uh, yeah, I, I guess now it's Disney buys the other one. <laughs> yeah, but you can't just give one example. You've always got to give at least a couple. <laughs> yeah, okay, good point. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you get like um, Ready Player One where it's got all these different franchises in it and it's like three studios. Oh, you just said it again. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we're talking about how much I hate capitalism and modern culture, so I'm allowed to bring up Ready Player One. <laughs> I will say the one series that did, uh, yeah, it did start with Disney. I, I was always disappointed the uh, the Narnia series hit a brick wall. They got like, three uh, it out. It was about it was about to get way Christian after those three. Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> I did read the books way back in the day. I think because I was being sent to a church summer camp. But right. <laughs> yeah. No, just uh, you know, my daughter was like two or three when, we, when the first couple came out, so we were kind of following along. Like, hey, the fourth one never showed up. What's up? <laughs> Look, everything gets its. Everything will get its turn having a disappointing, woke streaming resurrection. Um, still chasing after that Game of Thrones lightning in a bottle. So yeah, I did. Sure, just... I'm sure there will be like a uh, a woke Narnia coming soon. <laughs> I, I, Is it really I watched... such a crime to have a Narnia that's just like not preachy and racist? <laughs> <laughs> Look, hey, the speaking of, like John Carter managed to turn it around in the in the halcyon days of 2012, so you could do it. <laughs> but um, yeah. but I, I, I just I think it'll be a different kind of as a complaint. <laughs> I think it'll be a different kind of preachy and um, you know vegan Turkish delight. Yeah, I just put on the. Um, I, I I watched the first two of the foundation they just did the first one was like hey this is kind of cool the second one was like what's happening and then i never watched the third one so you know there, there's a streaming for everything that i think that was apple's big push to become a streamer or i something. didn't even know that existed but then i um, didn't know wheel of time had started until yeah, i, I, I didn't know and that like, until hey. i saw uh, like some youtube video came up like oh all the easter eggs in wheel of time episode one i'm like excuse me yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm gonna sit that one apparently the reviews again it's not. Well, we, we can but hope that Amazon um, pulls it out for its Middle Earth series, but I don't think it will. <laughs> not based on uh, not based on how people have responded to Wheel of Time. Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm really out of touch with pop culture living in Japan. Yeah, I'm very happy. Well, with I, I find that out. Yeah, <laughs> I find that out opening up Prime to watch some nonsense or other like it was never it's certainly not um, pop culture stuff pop culture is terrible at the moment but like i actually think john carter belongs in the world of streaming like they, they gave it a shot again 2020 2012 is a good time to sort of hope you can get a star wars style big cinema or marvel style big cinema franchise probably not but i actually think 
I hope someone does a good job of it in streaming land because there are 10 books that's, you know, eight or so series. It might actually be good. But then I think the reason pop culture is in a bad place is because no one's making any original stuff. Yeah. So maybe another remake of a hundred year old book isn't the answer. <laughs> well, a hundred years is, I think, old enough. It's good enough to go back. It's just <laughs> they do another, if they do another Spider Man, I'm going to kill myself. You know, it's, you don't need to reboot stuff that's literally screening at this time. Um, but I, I, I think there's John Carter in the same way. John Carter, like, kind of belong as the, as a as a character should be co-equal with with Tarzan um and isn't and and I think he's he's waiting for I think he's waiting for that kind of like reasonable treatment yeah it's kind of interesting when we did uh we did the you know flash flash Gordon a, a few years ago and we're like yeah we it, you can't really remake this now um you know, Ming the Merciless himself is kind of a major sticking point. But yeah, you, you can still do John Carter uh, with a yeah. few tweets. Like saying you can't really do Tarzan um, like that. I think when was the last time we got a new Tarzan? It was only like 10 years ago, right? There's, a, there's an animated Disney one, I think. That was yeah, There was a live action but, one a little yeah, after that as well. Yeah, I think I want to say no. No, I'm thinking Robin Hood was Ridley Scott. But uh, yeah, it was that kind of like, you know, like wannabe prestige Tarzan, you know, I did the 80s with the gray stroke thing, and, and there was an attempt a few years ago to do it again. So, 2016 Legend of Tarzan came out, which is even more recent than I thought. Oh, um, never mind. Who's the director? The director was David Yates, but the lead actor, it turns out it's not, but for a second, I thought it was the same guy from John Carter. Oh. <laughs> but it's just because he's got the same hair and stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that makes sense in a way. It was anyway, actually so. Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, See, unsurprisingly, I confuse Tarzan with Jungle Book because it's basically <laughs> grown-up Mowgli. So, uh, I, again, another one of those influences that I don't think he ever. I presumably he did, but it's like this is just this is just an adult Mowgli, isn't it? Um, and so I confuse like when was the last time there was a Tarzan with there was the live-action Jungle Book relatively recently. Whereas we'll live, we live action with quotations. Yeah. At least that one had an actor in it. It's more live action than yeah. Lion King was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, we all know the best live action um, Tarzan was George of the Jungle. Oh, yeah. Brendan Fraser, yes. <laughs> I always had a soft spot for the Blast from the Past movie. I don't know why. I know it's crap, but I still like it. Ever see that? Is that another Brendan Fraser one? Yeah, he his parents in the, the 60s, um, they all went to their cold war underground bunker because they thought the bombs were dropping and 30 years later they come out and it's just like 1995 <laughs> well somehow after searching tarzan google knew within three letters i was searching blast from the past okay so, <laughs> someone else has had this exact train of thought before <laughs> um before we wind down too much i just want to give give the floor for any final thoughts on on John Carter, because uh, Luke's got to go get more swole at the gym, and I guess got to start my journey soon. But uh, any final uh, musings on this one? I mean, this was the perfect Matt and Luke sci-fi sanctuary film because it's based on a absolute classic of sci-fi. It's a a huge flop, but it had some really like admirable elements, <laughs> and it weirdly gets into a bunch of weird metaphysical meditational mat shit. So <laughs> I very much enjoyed it, but yeah, it's, it's not 
I'm not going to rewatch it again tomorrow night. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but we can certainly have a conversation about it for an hour. That's hopefully interesting. If you haven't yeah. turned off to this podcast already, <laughs> uh, Gordon. Yeah, I, any, any, oh, go ahead. I think that's a real. I think that's really well said. And I would just add that for me, if you like, so there are Mars movies that have come out in the well, Red Planet, and so on that have had NASA involvement and faces on Mars and all this kind of weird stuff, right? And if that's always interested you, check this one out because it's 100 years old (laughs) and got some stuff. Like if you want to go, huh, that's weird about Mars and our history, and if you're kind of into that sort of vaguely ancient alien sort of world, this is a really fun film to watch. And then if you want to dive even further, the book's out of copyright and really short. And, and you can um, just find it online and go, I'm just going to see um, how that is. But, yeah, I, I think I, I, it's not a masterpiece. Uh, I think it – and that will keep – that's what I want for people who haven't seen it. Think about this story changed the 20th century, and that's that just raises further questions, I think. <laughs> yeah, I woke up this morning like, oh, crap, I forgot to read the book. So, oops, but I probably will. <laughs> I wasn't that interested in reading the book until I finished the film. And then I was like, oh, I kind of wish I'd watched this in time to have a little squiz at the books. But yeah, I, I like all that I've got on my Kindle is old out of print science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so this will go nicely on that list. Right. So, um, yeah, Gordon, I, I think I mentioned you by email. I have my my dad is now directing church traffic, 72 year old fathers directing church traffic with a uh, Fortune Fools Chaos Star hat. Very so, good. <laughs> Episcopal Church. <laughs> but uh, can you tell folks how to get into that or in Rune Soup and all that? Yeah, sure. Everything's at runesoup.com. So that's the blog and the podcast. And as as you just mentioned, we have like a Lenormand project going on where we're creating a, a Lenormand um, Oracle deck one card a week. And we're coming towards the end. And, uh, and it's been really fun. And definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff there. And I, I have been getting your podcast in uh, here and there recently. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> um, cool. Luke, you want to do our thing? OK, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find it on Twitter at MLSFSpod. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. And if you want to help support this podcast, you can go to Patreon.com slash Podcastio Podcastius. And there you'll find links to the other podcasts that me and Matt produce. Um I make a podcast about Monster Hunter and a podcast about Pokemon, if that's your jam. Matt does, uh, by the time you're listening to this, Matt has a Twilight Zone podcast, which I'm on mm-hmm. a little bit, called uh, Time Enough Podcast. He also has another podcast called Oral Hygiene, where he looks at educational films, experimental films, and weird documentaries. And again, by the time you're listening to this, we've done episode 100, where I finally got Matt to watch Ancient Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> So that will definitely be relevant if you've enjoyed this one. Um, And if you want to hear more of my voice and you are interested in Pokemon, I've started streaming. So go to twitch.tv slash LukeLovesPKMN Friday and Saturday nights from 8 p.m. UK time. Okay, everyone grab hold of your medallion. We're blasting off to Mars. I should have memorized the thing he says. (laughs) Just say what you think he said. I thought it sounded like Klingon. (laughs) (laughs) Hooper Duper Viras Basum. (laughs) Oompa Loompa Doopity Doo.
coming soon. The thing from another world. Dark Star. Groundhog's Day. Do you want do you want your fuck edited or not edited? I, I would like it if you edited it. Okay. Edited it. I live in an enemy. Yeah. Sometimes it's fun to leave it in. Oh yeah. Leave, I, it, I, leave this in at the end if you want. Yeah. I was just gonna tell you. Um. I I uh, I did my Black Friday um purchase last night. 
which is the the Blu-rays for the the Fast and Furious. So I'll nice. get around to watching those. Doesn't have <laughs> doesn't have nine, but I can get that later on. It's I, you know? I don't even know that that's out on Blu-ray yet. It was. Okay. It, I mean, yeah, I almost got it, but I was like, eh, it's, with the shipping, I can probably get that one in Japan or you know. Now yeah. that I bought eight, I don't feel too good about just <laughs> getting the nine. <laughs> You're gonna have a while before you get to nine. I expect with the rate you watch films. Right, right. Well, I, well, I might start in the middle, as I think you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, but if you've got them all, well, yeah, but I don't know how much you're into just very standard action films. Yeah, I want to. I want to watch the Insanity first. The I first one is just Point Break, but with cars. That's not the worst thing, but uh, second <laughs> one's a little insane. Just feels it feels like Tokyo. an eighties movie. No, no third, third one's third okay. one's Tokyo, and I guess you'd be into that because it's dumb Japan shit. Right. Then the fourth one is really boring, but it's just to get everyone in position for the fifth one. Right. So and the probably fifth one just... is when the rock turns up and it goes wild. Okay. I'll probably do what I did. Start from five. And then if you feel like it, watch the others. Okay. Tokyo uh... is just unrelated. <laughs> like Vin Diesel has a cameo at the end. But other than that, it's just its own characters. <laughs> well, it's a franchise it's a that didn't have a bad franchise, man. 